Thanks for tuning in to the CoLive podcast, where we explore learnings, insights, and discussions with co-living operators and professionals from around the world. If you're a first-time listener on our podcast, just a quick reminder that CoLive is the world's largest co-living association with the goal to connect, educate, and empower co-living professionals. Today's episode has been recorded during one of our monthly meetups, where we discuss a wide variety of topics related to co-living. To join our network or find out about future meetups and other events, please visit colive.org. That's C-O-L-I-V.org. And just as a quick reminder for our listeners, we have the 2021 Global CoLive Summit coming up on May 5th and 6th. There will be hundreds of co-living professionals joining this year's summit, where we'll have keynote speakers from across the world, covering topics from investment and business models, all the way to interior design and community facilitation. In our very humble opinion, it will be the best co-living event of the year. So go ahead and head on over to colivesummit.co, that's C-O-L-I-V, summit.co, to get your tickets. So without further ado, let's hop right in to today's episode. Okay, now we come to um, the reason most of us have joined this session. It's about this, this very relevant and, and, and thought-provoking topic about commercial to residential conversions. Is it a myth or reality or a realistic path for co-living projects in Portugal? Today, we're going to seek to really um, uh, uh, kind of uh, break this topic and explore with, from, from various angles, from the angles from, of investment and development, from the angle of uh, the legal side, from the licensing side, from the architectural side. So it's, the idea is here is that you, by the time you, you leave this event, you have... Uh, um, a great deal of information on how to de-risk, you know, a potential project that entails a residential to co- a commercial to residential conversion in Portugal for co-living. But and today we are we have a very strong lineup of speakers. First of all, I'd like to introduce you to Tiago Eiro, who is the CEO of East Bank Portugal. For those that don't know, East Bank is an organization that started in the UK and sorry in the US, uh, East Bank Inc. And it's an organization that it's focused on development, uh, on property development and management. But they have, uh, uh, they have had a particular um, big impact in Portugal, in Lisbon, in an area called um, Príncipe Real, where they own a significant amount of the, 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 of the, the building stock. And they have done a, a fantastic process of regeneration there. And perhaps Tiago is going to mention that. We are also very glad to have Ana Gomes here, who is the head of urban development for Cushman Wakefield, which is an international uh, uh, real estate consultancy uh, with whom we have been collaborating a lot. And, and, you know, and, 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 and Ana is extremely knowledgeable, knowledgeable of, the, of the Portuguese market. We have Pedro Clark from a Architecture, who is the principal architect and the CEO. Uh, Pedro, again, uh, incredible architect. We have been doing a number of feasibility studies together. He knows a lot about co-living and development in Portugal and the licensing regime and planning regime here. So he's going to help us to kind of uh, talk a little bit more about and, and kind of dismystify the topic of, of conversions here for us. And finally, Juan Lemos Portugal from CCL Advogados. Uh, João knows a lot about the licensing regimes. We have worked through many cases of how to de-risk, you know, 
these projects from a licensing and legal and fiscal perspective. Today, you're going to particularly call focus on, on the legal, which is very complex. And, and, um, and again, uh, we are very, very glad to have these individuals today. So this is a big topic. So I'm going to jump in straight away and perhaps ask the first question to Anna. So Anna, as I mentioned to you, knows a lot about this market and has operated in Portugal for a long time. And perhaps, Anna, you could tell us, so, you know, so this pandemic has affected commercial spaces in Portugal. And, and you, know, um, uh, but, you know, quite deeply. And we, we also are predicting a huge rise in, in, in kind of remote working. So some consultants are predicting a 200% increase in remote working, for instance, the US. The numbers in the UK are not very different. So uh, what is likely to happen is we're going to have a lot of vacant office spaces. This is already happening. And, and that may trigger a new wave of kind of commercial to, to residential kind of uh, conversions. Can you, can you tell us a little bit what do you feel is going to happen in terms of this topic? Yes, uh, Williams, hello. Um, well, a, a lot is happening, actually. Um, as, as, um, as I've mentioned to you, uh, the real estate market is a market of cycles, and property is one of those uh, market segments that does go through changes throughout those cycles. We've seen that a lot in Portugal. We actually saw that about 10 years ago with, uh, or the last 10 years, with the whole changing and redevelopment of the city centers. Um, and even then, we already saw some uh, office buildings being transformed into residential, for example. What we're seeing today is um, indeed four things happened with the pandemic, in my view. One of them is the whole working from home uh, movement uh, and many people also questioning uh, the, the, the environmental issues and the issues connected with traveling to work every day and the, the traffic jams and, and how uh, they can uh, avoid uh, that even when they do go back to the office in the future. Um, and also uh, all the uh, the safety issues, the health and safety issues in the buildings themselves. So what we think is definitely some people will go back to the office, um, but uh, there will be uh, many changes to the office space and even to buildings, especially the older buildings that have to be adapted uh, to, to, uh, to, to be able to better respond to most of these, um, these uncertainties which are now rising from, from the pandemic. Um, so there is a movement. Uh, we can see that uh, probably some, some office occupiers are thinking of occupying less space or they will probably think of occupying different uh, locations uh, more out of town instead of in the, in the city centers um, or buildings that are, are more dated and uh, are not so well equipped uh, in terms of uh, air certification, for example, uh, or that don't have good connections uh, for cycling. Um, all of that is being questioned at the moment. And what we're seeing uh, is indeed there are buildings, uh, especially office buildings that uh, are being considered for reconversion into uh, residential and obviously the alternative uh, residential segments like co-living is an important um, part of that that reconversion uh, but not only office buildings uh, for example retail 
detail. Um, one of the things that happened, it, it's something that has been happening for a while, but in Portugal, it's even more visible with the pandemic, the increase of e-commerce. Um, and so we believe that some retail space, especially the larger retail space, will also be reconverted uh, potentially into different uses, um, part of which could be residential or alternative residential. Uh, and another uh, important uh, property type is uh, hospitality. Um, and uh, many buildings were reconverted in the last few years to short stay um, license, short stay Airbnb type licensing. And some of those uh, are now being converted into long term um, residential uh, leasing or even uh, some form of co living or micro living. Um, so all of this is happening. And, um, and we think that the trend will be for it to continue to happen over the next few years. No, that's, that's is very interesting. And it's great to get these, this sort of very comprehensive response from you, Anna, because, you know, you are seeing this, this dynamics happen in the market right now in terms of investment and development. And, and, and it's great to get that perspective. These are not trends. These things are happening right now and are going to change our lives very soon. So as we talk about development, I think I would love to get to hear from, from Tiago, from, from Nisti Bank, um, and Tiago has a, a lot of uh, experience of, in terms of development, not only in Portugal, but also internationally. And, uh, and Tiago, I would love to hear from you in terms of what do you believe are the sort of benefits of undertaking a commercial to residential conversion from a development and in, an investment standpoint. Um, you know, I know East Bank has, has had done a number of projects of this nature. Could you talk a little bit about the experience? What do you think are the benefits and what do you think is going to happen in the future? Okay. Thank you, William. And thank you all for, uh, especially Olive and Behive for this forum. And uh, of course, East Bank, uh, is, as you said, is born in the, in the US and has been in Portugal for about 20 years. And basically, we have two areas uh, where we act. We, we, we buy real estate to, for long term. Our investors are very long term and, uh, and we rent most of it. We, we don't sell much, but we also sell. And in Portugal, we have, as you, as you said, mostly in Principal Real, different buildings. We have offices, we have uh, retail tenants, we have uh, housing, we have a hotel in design. And, uh, and, and in the US, for instance, we have, there was a big project similar to Principal Real in Georgetown where a big area or a big street was reconverted and revitalized. But there are also big, bigger projects, big apartment buildings for rental, for selling, and other uses it. In, in Portugal, I mean, we, we have been uh, revitalizing Principal Real, rehabilitating building by building for many years. And we uh, currently, our next project is one that is behind me, for instance, will be apartments, 33 apartments will be connected with another project, which is an hotel. And, uh, and the next two other projects uh, that we have housing or retail or offices, we really believe in a, in a bigger co-living concept or a neighborhood concept or a community concept where people should live, work, uh, shop and have fun in the same area, walking distances. So that's what, what we've been doing. That's what we believe. It has not changed with time. I think these times accelerated this concept. 
And we're really looking now to continue to invest, to go out of Príncipe Real and, and, and looking for a bigger project. And the bigger project can be a big commercial area, a big logistics area that we can transform into residential, for instance. We currently are building offices and retail. The next one will be, will be housing, will be for rental, for long-term rental from the beginning that we designed like that many years ago. And uh, in fact, we had also already an approach by a, a co-living operator wanting to, to put themselves in this project. And uh, we believe uh, it, it is even possible because we, we would like to have an operator for the apartments. And the, and the concept of the apartments can be, uh, can be a co-living for sure. Uh, and this was an old housing project, uh, which also had uh, uh, um, places to to store uh, storage, uh, warehousing, and so on. It was an old villa with different uses, and now we're transforming it into, into housing. And I think uh, uh, it will happen. We would like to do something uh, bigger uh, in Lisbon and uh, and uh, and a housing project for sure because we don't have much housing. We have more retail and, and offices. I believe that offices will continue. Although at a lower scale, uh, we our apartments are already uh, drawn or they were already designed in the past with a lot of space because we are in the high end, but where mm. people work and live. But I believe more and more uh, we will have more housing. We will need more housing, residential, and we will also want to live in communities in uh, co-living kind of uh, apartments. Then the new generations don't like commitments, they like they prefer to rent than to buy. In Portugal, we have a lot of ownership and that's not normal outside. And I think people less and less want to use their car. They want to be in an area where they can walk around. They use transportation, bicycles, and they just want to live in a very nice environment, which include a nice space, but also a nice community. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, we are seeing these trends materializing, you know, before these trends sometimes would take years to develop, but we are seeing this, these trends really accelerating and we, we are seeing them becoming reality in the high street very quickly, you know, in the, in the real estate scene as well. So perhaps now going for a more technical topic and sort of, and that's a question for Pedro Clark from, from A Plus Architecture. Pedro, what sort of, which sort of commercial typologies, uh, do you believe are best suited for a conversion from 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 commercial into into um, into residential from a, a sort of an architectural standpoint, and why do you think these are actually better? Um, Pedro, are you there? Perhaps you mute yourself. I don't know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, I got muted when I came back into the room and forgot. Um, Anyway, I was saying it's kind of a multi-layered answer because when we talk about co-living, we can be talking from a micro-community of maybe 10 people living together to a macro-community of maybe 200 units. And it depends a lot on what you're looking at because one of the key challenges you have, and I'm not going to go too much into the licensing, I'll just go into the actual volume of the space and the typology and what you get, so for smaller developments, uh, retail units, small retail units in the city centers could be converted. Uh, you have a problem here, which is the, the, the requirement, like to, besides the architectural change, you'll have the change of use. Uh, 
and that change of use will be will force you into a planning procedure that might be convoluted. But the types of buildings that we have from retail, you know, they have uh, small retail units. They have very high ceilings, which are very good for a co-living uh, development because you can maximize the amount of space in, a, in the same footprint. You can have multi-level, uh, like a, almost like a mini duplex inside your unit, which is great. Um, they have large open plan uh, floor plates, which also allows for big mingling spaces in the middle. But then if you're looking to do a more uh, like a larger scale development, something on the macro scale, the ideal kind of buildings to look for are the old industrial areas. So the in Lisbon here, we have Marvilla and there's been a lot of interest in it. And early in the year, uh, just as the pandemic was striking, we had someone ask us to do a feasibility and a full analysis, actually even a concept to, to how to convert one of these old factories into a co-living development. And the only way to make it financially possible is to have sufficient density because the larger retail buildings have very deep floor plates and you can't get light all the way through um, through the building. And although in places like New York, it's accepted to have some co-living units that don't have direct um, light, here in Portugal, that model would never be accepted, both from a planning and also from a cultural point of view. So the amount of intervention you have to do to yep. a building forces you into a large scale um, development and then that has higher construction costs. So in summary, you have these two sort of ends. The, the small retail units are great for micro developments. The large retail units and factories uh, are great for big conversion. You can, you can pack in not only co-living but co-working and shopping and all sorts of other mixed use developments. And then we have office buildings and office buildings are kind of ideal for uh, for a medium-sized development because the office buildings have kind of a mix of both. They have the very high ceilings because it was mandatory in Portugal to have higher ceilings in offices than in residential. And then the floor plates are normally controlled because of the way the Lisbon urbanism is done and Porto is, is relatively similar. Some of these office buildings were located in the old parts of the city. They've become vacant over the years and it's not just a pandemic, it's something that's been moving and happening. And the floor plates of between 12 to 18 meters give you quite a lot of space in the middle. So you can make the studios and the units all around the perimeter and then create some space in the center for some of your common areas and bring in either double, either double height spaces or bring in some light from one of the, like you leave a space on the facade that's open so you can get a connection out for a balcony or something. And we're looking at a building like that at the moment with you, as you know, Williams. Yeah, it's based on this concept that we have this deep floor plate, but it's not so deep that it can't be used. And then we maximize how we organize it. No, and I'm loving how that project is kind of is it's it's you know what what is becoming what we are doing with that project. But again, you can see the benefits there. I think what we realize for a lot of these office spaces is also that you don't have a lot of uh, um, I would say structural walls. Mm -hmm. that you may have in residential that you have to break and, and it's quite tricky to, to restructure. A lot of the time it's Pladur or other sort of more kind of temporary material that can be easily kind of reshaped. You can kind of do what you would need with the interior. So absolutely, these spaces are kind of a, a prime for co-living and you can transform some beautiful buildings. And the fact you've got that deeper plate, you either use a space in the middle or you can set back to create some kind of loggia. So if you have the benefit of having the whole building to redevelop, you can have a serious conversation with the planners to actually 
reduce the gross square meterage because you can create balconies by pulling the intern the the space the, the external walls in and that's quite a, a good way of doing things actually so they're very flexible we're finding extremely the flexible and, and and i think like where we have done that projecting the solution you create where we create balconies i mean it's actually extremely relevant that we are yeah. for the moment we are living in i think we were talking to the ines capanisa the head of data for for idealist and, and she was telling us that the the search uh, so Idealist is the biggest research platform for properties in Portugal and in Iberia. And she was saying the, the, the amount of search for places with an outdoor space, uh, you know, could it be anything, a, back, a balcony, a terrace or a garden has more than double in the past, the past six months. So we are seeing the, the relevance. So you want to work with a building that allows the flexibility to create the space and design in a way that reflects the modern sort of lifestyle. But let's go deeper now into this technical side. And, yeah. you know, from a licensing perspective, that's another thing that needs to be considered when they're looking to develop these spaces. And, and you know, when I say licensing, we need to look at the use classes. You know, it's going to be this a service building, you know, what sort of like licensing, you know, that building has and what you can transform that into. So uh, we have, we're lucky to have an expert because uh, here that is João Portugal because it's an extremely complex area, particularly in Portugal. So uh, João, what sort of use classes, uh, you know, are best suited for a conversion from, from commercial into, into co-living and why? Can you talk particularly about the, the legal sides and the benefits? I know we, we have spoken a lot about this and you have supporters in projects, but there is a lot there to be learned around this area. Can you please enlighten us a little bit about this, this element? Well, here the, the, the challenge is that everything is still to be defined. So um, there is no clear answer to your question. Uh, the, the, as a matter of fact, there, there is no licensing regime applicable or directly applicable to co-living projects. Uh, this, mean, this doesn't mean that it cannot be done. It just means uh, or it rather means that we it, it has to be studied on a case-to-case -case basis. And, um, and that requires, of course, that increases the complexity of the process because it, it needs and entails the intervention of the municipality and to have a very close discussion with the municipality. We understand that from the, the this... Uh, last few years, there is an increasing interest from the municipalities towards this kind of projects and co-living and co-working. And in the, first, in the first years, people were suspicious of these, uh, what were called trends, as you were mentioning before. But now we, are, we, are, <laughs> we have been realizing that they were no longer trends, but they're here to stay. And of course, the pandemic has uh, increase the interest of this kind of in this kind of uh, of project, and the converting the converting um, process has the same spirit in the base because depending on what you have and if you have an office building and then you want to 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 convert it into residential, so first of all you need to look at the the urban planning plan, uh, schemes and the regimes and to understand if it's possible or not. Usually th that's the movement which is all, always allowed. So the hard thing is to convert from residential to office 
or to to even tourism use and so this this movement from um, from from office building or from retail to um, to residential is usually allowed there are some although there are some uh, some limits and usually the ground floors when we were calling we were talking about uh, retail and retail shops located on ground floors there are especially in the center the central uh, areas some of the areas are uh, of the ground floors ground floors are actually reserved to uh, retail so it's harder to get residential projects and residential units in ground floors especially in central areas of the um, uh, of the cities of the, the the bigger cities but this said then you have to you have to look at the project and to understand before the municipality what's the best use for what's the intended the, the intended project and it can be so the advantage is that it can be everything it can be either either residential like pure residential and uh, but there you have some restrictions and you have the areas restri restrictions which is a very important uh, a very important limitation because each uh, each room each unit each studio has at least for instance a studio must be 35 square meters and that is an impo a legal imposition that in some in some projects it can actually prevent the, the project to be successful because of the areas and um, but it can be either residential either touristic so you can set it up as a, a hotel or touristic apartments or other any other kind of touristic uh, uh, project and uh, there you have the advantage of in the future you can reconvert it to pure hotel uh, as you can re reconvert it to pure residential and uh, also and that's the third option as equipment uh, the, the there is a specific cl classification of equipment uh, more or less like student housing and in some municipalities student housing is seen as equipment and uh, my understanding is that uh, pure co-living big projects of co-living can be seen and can be classified as equipment and that could allow to some flexibility in these um, these rules such as areas and uh, square meters and uh, and even floor heights and I think that that, that can be um, that can be seen in a more flexible way. But again, as there is no specific uh, spe specific regulation applicable to co-living, it has to be seen on a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, no, pretty much in a close contact with the municipality. Yeah, I think there are two things that I'd like to highlight from what Joan has said, which is spot on. I think one of the things is that some, we have been kind of be coding into projects that sometimes what happens, you know, the, the, the numbers works, the building works, the design, from a design element, you know, you can create a good product, but then from a licensing perspective, there are restrictions that prevent the project to be, to be effective design. 
And the other thing, like the other thing I would mention is that um, from an eco-living perspective, what we are trying to do as operators and designers of the living space to optimize this space. And there, is, there are cities uh, that have, you know, there are certain numbers that we can tell even before actually looking at any of the numbers of design whether the living scheme is actually efficient at all. For instance, um, for instance, in high density cities like London and Paris, what we are looking is at 25 square meter per inhabitant kind of ratio, you know. Um, in low density cities, you know, maybe Madrid, maybe Porto, you are looking at 40 square meters uh, per inhabitant when you divide all the spaces. So uh, there are ways that you can, you can look at these projects, but if already legally, uh, you know, you are prevented from having these smaller units and more uh, efficient units, then you know the project finances are not gonna work. So you, you save yourself from looking to all these numbers. Uh, you know, already knowing these things. That's why we work so closely with Joan to understand these things from a feasibility perspective even before we start to spend time on the Excel. So that's quite important. Now, uh, perhaps moving for an area that, you know, again, is a challenge in most places, you know, which planning. You know, whenever you want to make these changes to a building, some kind of large interventions, you've got to ask permission from the authorities and asking planning, to ask for a planning permission to do so. And, and, and Pedro, I would love to ask you, to, uh, you know, what are the sort of planning risks or advantages of undertaking these conversions uh, mm -hmm. from, 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 from uh, commercial to residential? This is a question that ties in very nicely from what Joan was saying, because the biggest planning risk is really there not being a particular use class that we could use. So from a planning point of view, uh, a co-living development, let's talk about a, a medium to large scale development because the smaller ones um, are probably easier. The, the medium to large scale ones, I'm talking 50 units and above, they have this problem that depending on how you decide to classify it from tourism to residential, you'll have different hoops you have to jump through. And certain parts of the city will not allow you to implement, um, well, they'll always be very um, for, um, positive looking. They'll look very favorably towards the residential development. But if all of a sudden you say it's a tourism based project, the response from the municipality might be different. In fact, there are two different departments in Lisbon Council that look at things differently, structuring projects and residential projects. They're not even seen by the same groups of architects, for example, here. And that changes everything because the moment you go down the residential route, you have uh, a very well-established legislation. It's very strict, as you're saying. We, we have to comply with minimum areas, minimum ratios, minimum sizes of bathrooms, minimum requirements for people with wheelchair access, everything is regulated. So you can't do small units and then create a lot of common spaces because it, become, it doesn't become viable financially. Whilst if you go down the other side of the tourism development or trying to, to find your way and weave your way through a student housing development, because even that there are no defined rules or not very defined rules at least. And what you find is you can traverse the model very quickly you can actually make a development where everything can be much, much smaller. And then you only need, for example, one um, student um, disabled access room. And then the problem is for your future, how do you convert and how do you create an exit strategy if you want to change your building? The planning risk then comes back again and you have to go through the, the process. 
The other planning risk, which I see apart from choosing which class you're going for, which type of building you want to legal to license is um, the deadlines and the process. Unfortunately, everything is analyzed in a case by case and the pandemic hasn't made anything faster. And projects here are still taking very long time to, to, to get out of a planning process. And the more innovative and the more different they are, the more sort of um, pushback we get. Because if we do something that the planners know exactly how to call it and how to classify, and they look at it and they say, oh, this is clearly a residential building. They know what to look for. We know what to provide. The moment we start to try and do something different, and Williams and I started conversations very early on with Philippe Chuzeta, who's now a member of parliament, but used to be uh, the urban councillor for Kashkais, trying to promote co-living in Kashkais, and she was very much in favour. But then the planning department has all these restrictions and all these rules, and it was very difficult to get a very clear path. Um, they've even tried to promote uh, housing competitions where an element of co-living would be uh, welcome, but then seeing it all the way through to, to conclusion is difficult because you have multiple bodies that have to be consulted. And the moment uh, there is no guideline, Joan will tell us everything depends and it has to be studied on a case by case. But unfortunately, the lawyers that sometimes sit on the, um, on the urban councils are very much, in, in my opinion, and I hope I don't offend anybody, uh, computers say no type of people. So the moment they find something they can't identify, it creates a bit of uh, sand in the uh, in the gearbox. So we need to think of intelligent ways of navigating the planning process. Okay, Pedro, thank you so much. I mean, I think what we are getting to is to a situation that, yes, I think we realize here there is a big opportunity. Uh, there is a momentous opportunity that's quite relevant to the moment that we are living in, but this is complex. It's, it's something that whenever you want to entertain a, a conversion, it's not, I think you, you need uh, people like Juan, like, like Pedro, like Anna, that actually not only have the experience, but also knowing what to look at, but also that can help you through that due diligence so that you actually, you know that you can de risk that, uh, that, that the investment and development and getting the other side with the result that you want. But perhaps, you know, as you can see, there are many restrictions. This is complex in Portugal, but it's achievable. We are doing it. It's happening. So I think the question I have for Tiago and Anna that have really a pulse in the market is like, what sort of new regulations do we need in Portugal to make this easier, to make it like less complex for us to really start to transform these spaces at, at a much greater, at a, at a much uh, quicker rate and, you know, at a bigger volume because, you know, the cities of Portugal will benefit from that. But certainly this, this amount of regulation and lack of clarity doesn't help us. So what are your thoughts on that? Perhaps let's start with Anna and, and then go to Tiago. Um, well, I would say definitely licensing is an issue. Unfortunately, not only for co-living, but as, uh, as uh, uh, has already been said today, the uh, the municipalities are a little bit difficult. Uh, Lisbon is particularly difficult, um, and everyone complains that uh, 
it, it is extremely time consuming to get projects approved and not only time consuming but very uncertain um, many things are asked for by the city council um, and uh, and uh, developers and investors and operators try to respond and uh, there's just the communication is very very difficult um, so I would say that at more flexibility from the, from the municipalities would we if we start with that uh, I, I'm sure that the um, the the this whole segment could uh, develop uh, much better. On the other hand, I also think that some incentives could be given to facilitate uh, alternative uh, residential uh, projects such as co-living. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm, that came to my head and it, it just related to what was just said, uh, there's also another big difference between residential or considering the residential use and the services use or the touristic use it has to do with the type of uh, rental contracts that you're then going to have with the occupiers. Um, if, you're, if you have a project which is classified as residential, then you will have to have a residential rental contract. Whereas if you have services, it it is much easier to, uh, well, uh, recover VAT, for example. Uh, and uh, also you can have shorter uh, lease contracts and you can have uh, contracts in the form of service providers that include electricity, water, um, Wi-Fi connections, uh, kind of an all-in service uh, for sh shorter periods of time, because I think that it's usually much more flexible and practical to have contracts up to a year or six months for uh, a co-living occupation. And it's much more difficult to do that with residential. So obviously here you have this issue, the licensing and also the legal structure, which uh, is a little bit complicated because as uh, Jean Portugal already mentioned, it is not something which is already foreseen um in in licensing um in general uh and uh the the the, the concept has already uh, arrived but the whole legal uh, and licensing structure behind it has not accompanied that arrival yet <laughs> we're still a bit further behind and i think that would be uh, if if that was changed and adapted uh, it would make everyone's life much easier no, absolutely. I think the important thing, I think, Anna, that is opening, I think we are talking to, to people at the, you know, in, in Porto, in Lisbon, in other towns where we're developing projects, so we are doing feasibility studies, and people see that this has arrived now. It's no longer a trend, like Portugal mm -hmm. said, and they say, actually, now I have to react to this, because now we are putting a real project in front of me that can bring resources, knowledge, and investment to my town to my city, you know, and all of a sudden this become very real, it's not conceptual. So it, it, this is great. And, and Tiago, what's your, what's your perspective on this? I mean, you have done an amazing job in Prince Pireal and, 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 you know, I know it hasn't been easy as well. I mean, a lot of the buildings you, you, have, been, you have transformed are historical buildings, um, buildings of, uh, that you have to be very careful how you go about development. So, what legislation or any changes that would make your life easier as you approach this project? Okay. Yes, I can share a little bit of our experience from the past and more recently. I mean, I think trends are accelerating everything. They're accelerating the way we live, the way we work, but also accelerating the flexibility that needs to come from the, from the municipalities, from the entities. Uh, of course, we are in a, in a special area with a lot of historical intervention so our projects already take some time and that's not new for us 
Although we have been pushing a lot in the last, especially year and a half, two years, uh, in terms of uh, licensing new projects for redevelop doing redevelopments, and a couple of them are, are housing, and as I said before, and uh, we are seeing some uh, some uh, better uh, interaction with the municipality. I think part of it is because we we, we built uh, our teams, our structure, in order to be more professional, more demanding, more. Uh, um, having a better talk with the municipalities. We have now eight projects under licensing, so we can put more pressure by that. But of course, it's difficult. I think uh, uh, the project, what has been said about the way you can license projects, I think the, for instance, this uh, residential project that I talked before of 33 apartments, we are doing them as housing because it's a long process of licensing going. And, and we are thinking in the end to, to transform it or to put it under touristic uh, apartments, especially to benefit from that uh, flexibility that we need in terms of leasing. I think, but with the last project we finished was a housing project that was previously an hospital. So we, we transformed it here in, in Príncipe Real. And uh, of course we, need, we needed to go through the licensing. It was not, the licensing was not the bigger problem. Of course, archeology span is, is, is an issue. But I, I think that the key, the key is to, to be very professional, to study the laws. I mean, everything that has been said, um, of course, the municipality is, is, is difficult. The laws are very standard, but also the people are, are getting to face these new realities, not only realities in terms of the way people want to live, the co-living concepts, the, co the, the student housing and so on, but also the need to redevelop cities and redevelop not only as it has been done in the last 10 years, but looking forward and, and the way cities need to have their correct tenant mix uh, kind of thing with, uh, with housing. With, I've been living in, uh, in Baixa of Lisbon for 20 years and I saw that transformation. But today without tourists, you don't have anyone because uh, it, it was all dependent on tourist, tourism. And you need to have different things. You need to have retail, you need to have housing, you need to have co-living, you need to have student housing everything together. I would live with, with uh, I think, some keys of, of developing these projects. And I think it, it relates with licensing because it has been talked by Pedro, the aspects that uh, you should look into when you're, for instance, uh, transforming commercial uh, buildings into residential, I think is key lighting windows. And that has to do with, with some uh, licensing aspects sometimes. Uh, and the, 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 the bigger the buildings, the more difficult to, to fulfill the licensing. I think the high ceilings are an are, are important issue, not only for the quality of what you're building, but uh, in order to take advantage of the commercial buildings. Location, I think, is key to develop these projects because the municipality can uh, license you better a project if you have public transportation, if you have, uh, um, for instance, to, to do housing today, it's not so, so essential to have a garage because modern people, younger people don't need so much to use the car, especially if you have transportation. Quality of, of space design, if you put a lot of quality into it, municipalities also uh, are more flexible to accept your projects. I think common areas has been talked also by Pedro, the relationship between what, is, what are your rooms, your living rooms and also the, the common areas. I think green areas are essential and they also are an advantage when you're licensing, if you have more uh, open spaces in green areas. Yeah. And also the, the, the flexibility. 
Anna has talked about the, the leases. We, we like to have a lot of flexibility on our uh, leases, also in the, retail, in the retail aspect, the offices, the housing. And that's one of the reasons we're thinking of putting it as a, as a hospitality scheme, more hotel scheme in the end, because we want smaller leases. We want to do three months, six months leases and not yeah, yeah. Be, be fixed to the three years or the five years. And, yeah. and I think to have the environment around you also is, is interesting when you're analyzing a project to see what's around, because the municipalities are always looking to see what, how your project relates with a bigger area. And yeah. as you go to areas with need more redevelopment, your project can be easily uh, licensed. If you're going into areas which are already a lot crowded with similar projects, uh, the municipalities will be less flexible. Yeah. So uh, we, 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 are, we, are, we have one advantage that we are in, in Prince Real, which there, are, there were some studies before saying that is a wanted address, not only for living, but also for co-living. So we expect uh, projects of co-living to appear. Absolutely, that came a number one amongst like people with, there was a study done last year that said actually what the preferred neighborhood for people if they could choose a co-living space and Prince Royal came number one for obvious reasons for those that have visited there. Guys, I, I would like to, um, to perhaps not bring the panel to a close, but I know we are over time, but there are some people that want to ask questions. Uh, 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 and I, let's have maybe five, 10 minutes, if you can, of, of, of Q&A, if there are some burning questions there. Uh, Silvia, I was just wondering if there is any questions in the chat box, any questions for anyone in the chat box? I yes, there's a few questions. So one question for Tiago, Eiro, which preferred location uh, that East Bank are seeking investing uh, for BTR or co-living? It's a very specific question, uh, but what type of locations? So we want to do a bigger to do a bigger residential project, and we we want to continue also to do rehabilitation. So um, so picking up a commercial or a warehouse building and transforming it into housing is something that we look for. And going out of Prisperial, we have been looking at a couple of other neighborhoods where we want to invest with some impact with more than one building, which can be the area, for instance, between Santos and Caixudre, something we like. The neighborhood of Alvalade, it's a neighborhood that we think works very well, functions and, uh, and has been evolving well. And then there are other areas like Beato and so on that we look, but really uh, what we think is that transportation is key and needs to be there, public transportation for us to invest because we don't believe so much in the cars in the future. We believe in the mobility without cars. And, um, and we think younger generations will want to live in nicer environments, not necessarily that they need to go by car. Thank you, Tiago. We have another question here from Victor. Which councils in Portugal are most forward-looking and welcoming to co-living projects? I mean, I'm more than happy to take this one as I'm talking to, to several, in several uh, different, in several towns and, and cities we have projects and feasibility studies. So I would say that, you know, there is a difference here. I, I notice an opening in all, Lisbon, Portugal, sorry, Lisbon, Porto, um, Ericeira. You, you look at, you know, you go and talk to them, there is an opening that very interesting, the trend and they see that's relevant to the development of the town. However, there is a difference in terms of those that uh, are proactive 
in terms of helping you to answer some of the questions that may help to de-risk your project. Uh, so far, I think like uh, we have had an extremely positive experience with the Porto Council and people like Pedro Bagrania and others in, in the planning team that, that have been helping us to really navigate and actually they have perpetual activity support and, and you know, uh, some projects because they see this as a, a very important um, component of the, the sort of um, culture and, and infrastructure they want to create. And, and, uh, and you know, so I would say of all the, my ex, of all the towns I have interacted, I would say Porto, the one that are, has been the most kind of flexible, helpful and, 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 and supportive. And then we have a, a similar question from Victor. Where in Europe is the planning regulation the best for co-living and how do we get that COVID in Portugal? Is there an organization working to unite the co-living movement voice in trying to get changes in planning rules? Well, I think the organization is Colib, <laughs> um, uh, but um, I, I think, you know, as, as Pedro have mentioned, Pedro, uh, we have had experience actually when we work with Filippo Rosetto, we're trying to bring like uh, examples of different countries. The reality is when you look at the most established car markets for co-living, which is the UK, uh, Germany and France, even there we have a lack of regulation. But having said that, there are, in the UK, we have something called sugeneries. That one, we are not able to classify a, a project with a particular use class. There are still some very clear frameworks of how can we approach the project and, mm -hmm. and how can we use that project for, for the purpose that you intend. And that's what's lacking here because sometimes here you either have a user class or you have a, a big void. Yeah. And uh, uh, Pedro, I would love your perspective on that. Can I jump in? I'm slightly biased being half British, but the, the, there's a very good thing about uh, British law for me and British planning law, because like everything else in the British law system, it's case-based as opposed to being law-based. So it allows for more flexibility. Uh, and I think one of the things I'd love to see here in Portugal is for co-living and alternative residential developments, I'd love to see a framework more than a set of laws something that allows for flexibility and for the councils to be able to to look at them and determine okay this is this is not trying to be housing so let's not enforce traditional housing and residential rules because they won't apply and they restrict what we're trying to do and the fact that the UK has split uh, your planning development rights from your building permit rights and for people that don't understand that because it's quite different here in Portugal when you submit a project for planning you're also submitting it from building control. So the regulations of air quality and volume and uh, fire are all analyzed at the same time. And in the UK, it's not. You first apply for city development rules, which is the planning permission, which tells you whether you can build a certain height, a certain depth, a certain volume. And then after that's been approved, you have to go through the process of proving that that volume and that height can then justify the building code and the safeties that you need. And this Portugal, there's advantages in the Portuguese system because it's more connected. You don't get planning for things that can't be built. But sometimes for things like co-living and, and things that are a little bit out of the box, this two-stage approach, you know, what does a city care about? It cares about the environment and how buildings fit into that city. So I think first and foremost, when we're looking at this, um, the, urban the urban planners here should be looking at, okay, 
does this building fit in with the fabric? That's number one. And then after that, how can we make it function inside to make it safe and also meet the needs of the investors, the developers and the people? Because if we can't get uh, co-living, there's also a generation that not by their fault in any way, uh, it's not their fault that tourism forced all the rents in Portugal to go up through the roof. But if we can't get smaller units sometimes where you then share common spaces, like Matthias Holwish said, we can rent the same amount of square meters for a lower amount of money because our private space is reduced. And then we have a series of common areas that we share. And I think we need that revolution in terms of, of planning to, to move things forward. If, you, if, I, if, if I may add one thing, I really think, and this is uh, how policy works and how municipalities usually work. I really think that, that we need brave people testing their projects, implementing their projects. And once the municipalities see they, they work and they're already implant, they, they uh, are already implemented, then they will be and they will look at things in a more safe way and they will allow this flexibility that Pedro was, was talking. Now, is still everything is a bit suspicious and you must stick to the rules. But at a certain point, I'm really, I'm really confident that once it's no new anymore, it's not new anymore, then municipalities will look at these projects with much more um, flexibility and willing to implement it. That's my view and I, it's very important it's very important that people come together and do lobby and talk to municipalities and expose their views. Woohoo, that's us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that for the, the and last I think that's the path. That's the only way that we will get this framework. Yeah. Any you. other questions, Sylvia? No, there is one, but I think we, it was from Alex, the hotel industry after a decade of operation reached a similar low policy around Europe. Do we expect the same path? Exactly. That's... And that answered the question, Joao. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, I would say so. I would like, again, you know, like, uh, I know we are 20 minutes over time. I would like to thank you, one, for your patience, but... Uh, First and foremost, to thank our speakers for a very rich discussion. Um, this, uh, as you realize, is a complex, technical, but not impossible topic that if you are serious about co-living, you are having to, going to have to face these questions. And I hope this uh, today's session has enabled you to at least know what you think about. But there has been so many answers. And, and I have learned from this session, even though I'm, I'm working day in, day out with these projects. So I'd like to thank uh, Ana Gomes, I'd like to thank Tiago Eiro, Pedro Clark and John Portugal for an amazing session. If you could unmute yourself and perhaps uh, help me to cheer them. Mm -hmm. woo, 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 woo. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank and you. again, guys, we are going to be here next month. We don't know yet the topic. We always keep the topic a bit of a secret, but it's always relevant. And again, if you don't forget, we have the Co-Living Summit happening being streamed live from Paris on the 5th and 6th of May. These, these spaces are limited, so go and book your space and, and join our movement. Thank you ever so much and have a great evening again. Thank you.
Thanks again for joining us today. And from all of us here at CoLive, we hope you learned a lot and maybe even picked up a few pieces of wisdom to help expand the co-living movement. To check out the CoLive membership that will allow you to connect with other leading co-living professionals, or even just to stay updated on future podcasts and upcoming events, head over to colive.org. Again, that's co-liv.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode. Thank you.